Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley, and I'm here with my colleague, Chase Cannon. We are attorneys with NFP, um, and we bring to you different topics that relate to benefits compliance and group health plans. Today, we're going to focus on kind of a nuanced area, but an area that we continue to get many questions on, um, and it relates to those so-called point solutions and the compliance challenges that these point solutions raise. So, Chase, let's set the set the baseline. Let's start off by telling me what these uh, point solutions are and what we're referring to. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question, and they probably do go by a lot of different names out in the field and industry, but point solutions seems to be the most common. And I think of these almost as add-ons to the employer group health plan. They're really supplements um, are meant to try and fill in where there are maybe some gaps in the employer plan or maybe just enhancements to it. Uh, but these are things like uh, fertility benefits, musculoskeletal uh, benefits, and mental health benefits. And, and there's others. Um, life coaching is another one. Um, but employers might be approached with these point solutions to help improve their health and group benefit offerings for employees and to lower healthcare costs. That's kind of how they are being um, marketed. But point solution vendors are, they're often focused on targeted improvement areas that range from specific condition, condition management to digital solutions and apps. And um, also for benefit program simplification. So it's really almost a tech-driven solution. We see a lot of these in app form, downloadable on your phone, and you can access it through that. But then they're really hyper-focused on one type of condition or illness. For employers, they present an opportunity to add value to the overall benefit offering their employees. So that's another way that you'll see them. Okay, so these are add-ons to the group health plan. And so how does that work as it pertains to compliance? Are they considered group health plans in and of themselves? Like I think of fertility coverage, a fertility plan, for example. How does that relate to the employers, their major medical plan that they're already offering? Yeah, and that's, re that's really the question. And that's what often arises with these point solutions when you try and bring them on as an employer. Um, there's a, there's compliance considerations and a lot of these vendors are not highlighting those right up front. Some are doing a better job, but it's kind of usually the last thing that gets talked about. And, uh, there are several compliance considerations. The biggest ones are ERISA, COBRA, and the ACA. Those kind of go in together on whether, um, this is medical care, because that would trigger all three of those laws. Then you have HSA eligibility, which is always a, an issue if you're you know, introducing a new benefit. And then there's some taxation and some tax aspects. So starting with that ERISA, COBRA, ACA, trifecta, um, all three of those, um, whether they actually apply, it all comes back to whether the programs are considered medical care. If they are, and, and unless there's some exception, then, then that means ERISA, a COBRA, and the ACA generally apply, and then you have to take steps to make sure that you're complying with those laws. Um, and we'll talk about that, like actual compliance in a minute, but the analysis of whether it's medical care comes back to what the program is actually offering and how it's structured. And that analysis really boils down to whether the app or the program is providing individualized diagnosis, treatment, or prescription services for an employee, 
If so, then that would be medical care. But you can you compare that with a program that is just providing behavioral coaching, education, or like broad-based exercise or other general recommendations. If it's more broad-based in nature, um, then it's not going to be considered medical care, and therefore you're not going to trigger ERISA or COBRA. You don't have those issues. And that's true even if the broad-based or general advice act is actually rendered is personal to the employee. Um, but if it's a licensed physician and, and they're diagnosing or treating or prescribing around the particulars of an employee's specific condition, and that's probably going to be considered uh, medical benefits, and that's going to trigger these laws. So I think what would be most helpful is to kind of walk through an example. Can you give us, just, just walk through a more specific example? Yeah. Yeah, because it does really come back to how the benefits are structured and, and how the advice is being rendered. So let's just take a program that asks John. We'll use John here because everybody loves, everybody knows and loves a John, right? Um, John, the program asks John to verify whether they have a, a specific condition like type 2 diabetes. And John verifies that he has type 2 diabetes. And then as a response to John's affirmation that he has type 2 diabetes, the program gives John general coaching service about diet, exercise, and sleep habits that will be beneficial to reducing the risk of progression to type 1 diabetes. That general coaching is probably not enough to be considered medical care. And while that feels a little counterintuitive since the program is providing information on a disease and preventing that disease and coaching, and even sometimes that coaching comes by a trained or licensed physical therapist or a diabetes specialist, and it relates to this condition um, that John has, but because it's not a specific training regime, it's not a specific prescription or diagnosis from that therapist, it's not going to be considered medical care. And so part of the analysis looks at who is prescribing the illness and the disease in this example, John is he's self-diagnosed, right? He told the app and, or the program that he had diabetes. And then the program returns some general suggestions back. And so the physical, uh, physician and therapist, they did not look at John specifically and review symptoms and then tell John that he did indeed have type 2 diabetes. Um, it's really he did that self-analysis or sorry, self-diagnosis. And then that same kind of analysis comes into play when you're talking about whether John has been treated or prescribed something related to the condition. In this example, the physician therapist is providing general information that might be helpful for someone that has type 2 diabetes, but the physician or therapist is not suggesting one particular treatment or drug that would directly help John's specific condition. For example, if after reviewing John's eating or diet habits, uh, the physician or therapist were to say, you should consume less Dr. Pepper and Fruit Loops and eat more greens and, and take this particular drug, then that would be enough where it's now individualized treatment or prescription surrounding John's particular condition. And, there, and therefore that would lean towards medical care. So Chase, do you think that you could break it down into step-by-step -step analysis for employers? I mean, it really kind of draw it out for them and make it a bit uh, more, um, you know, delivered. Yeah, so I think we can boil it down to really four steps. The first is whether the physician or therapist is licensed as a doctor, physician, or medical professional. So you'll see some that are licensed as life coaches, and maybe their advice that they're giving is, is not necessarily related to a condition. So it's really whether they're licensed as a medical professional. 
Step two would be whether the physician or therapist is actually making the diagnosis or if they're just responding to someone who has self-diagnosed. Number three would be whether the advice or coming out of the program is specific or individualized to the employee or whether it's just specific to the general condition. And then the fourth step would be whether there is any specific direction or prescription that's specific to the individual employee or if it's just general suggestions uh, that are specific to the condition itself. So another way to frame the analysis would be this way. Would the program's advice be helpful to any person with that particular condition, or is it only helpful to the specific employee or individual that's involved? If it's the former, in other words, it's general advice uh, for any person, then it would likely not be medical care. But if it's the latter, it's much more likely to be individualized diagnosis, treatment, or prescription, and therefore it would be, it would be medical care. Okay. I think it, I still think this really gets back to let's walk through some more examples because we get those through our questions and it really turns on the facts. Right. And so it gets down to, um, giving me an, an example more along the lines of what wouldn't be considered medical care. So yeah. can you walk me through some of that. Yeah. So an example of a general advice type of program, again, the individuals would self-identify their issues via the app or the program. And then the program sends back general informations uh, or information or ideas um, that would be helpful to anyone with that self-diagnosis. Um, in, in a program like this, there wouldn't be any individualized diagnosis. And even though there might be licensed therapists responding to questions, their answers would be designed to be general in nature rather than a diagnosis or prescriptive treatment individualized to the employee. So this type of program would focus on coordinating or arranging coaching, education, and related support. It would be focused on monitoring progress, um, and that all helps lean it away from medical care. Um, and so the primary services that are provided would be things like exercise programs rather than a specific therapy. And um, the program is really there to monitor and support the employee with helpful structure. Uh, but again, it's not specific advice. Um, but in other programs, so this would be an example of a program that maybe leans a little too far. Uh, and this is from some that we've seen and maybe describes it in promotional material. Um, this is one vendor said, connect with your physical therapist anytime get personalized one-on-one -on -one care from a licensed physical therapist. Every member gets matched with a, a dedicated physical therapist for ongoing support, care plan adjustments, and more. Uh, so those materials kind of suggest that, you know, the physical therapy is going a little bit further and is a little bit more individualized. And that suggests that it's medical care. Another vendor provided something that they call a, a, an expert medical opinion. And we've seen this across uh, several uh, vendors, but that's where a doctor or other professional would give their actual opinion, or they would review an already existing diagnosis and then provide their thoughts on it. And we've heard arguments that because they're not giving the original diagnosis, it's not medical care, but we think because the fact that they're reviewing it and providing some confirmation or suggestion, you know, that it's not, that that is clearly medical care. It's a licensed professional giving them their opinion. So why right. it's like, it's, it's like getting a second opinion, right? So it's, it, exactly. yeah, just, it certainly um, seems like that would rise to the level 
of medical care. So once once it is determined that it's medical care, then what? You mentioned the trifecta of ERISA, COBRA, ACA. So what, what happens then? Yeah, this is where it gets tricky, but the easiest way to deal with those three laws is to integrate it with the regular plan. And when I say regular plan, I'm talking about the employer's major medical plan, their group health plan offering, and you would do that through plan documents. And that really means you add it as a benefit under the regular plan, it becomes part of the plan, and therefore you achieve compliance with the ACA via that in integration. If it remains outside the major medical plan, it can be viewed on its own as a, sort of a, its own standing, standalone group health plan, and it would be violating a few provisions of the ACA. One of those is that I did it, you have to cover all preventive services without cost sharing. And obviously the, the point solution would only be covering the benefits, wouldn't be covering the full scope of preventive benefits. So you need that integration into the major medical plan for ACA purposes, and you can satisfy ERISA, those plan doc and SPD requirements by adding it to plan docs. And it really just becomes another benefit. Most of these point solutions um, or a lot of them are just an expansion of providers. You know, it's just another access point to get in with specialized providers. And so you add it in literally it's just another benefit under the plan. But Cobra is a big, huge challenge because right. Right, most, right, vendors, right. most vendors are telling employers to offer the product to all employees. Uh, but by doing that, if it's medical care, you create that problem of, you know, the, cur the current practice is probably to only offer COBRA on the major medical plan. And that applies only to those enrolled in the major medical plan. So you have this mismatch. Mm -hmm. So the easier approach that we're recommending is to limit participation in the point solution program to only those who are enrolled in the major medical plan. That way you avoid that mismatch and you just, you know, add this point solution as another part of your COBRA package that comes along. If somebody elects COBRA, they continue that access. Right, because you don't want to get into some non-compliance issues with COBRA that can get costly, uh, certainly if you fail mm -hmm. to make proper notices and so forth. So, um, I mean, the next big issue is HSA eligibility. We always worry about that when benefits are provided and um, under the deductible, so to speak. So yeah. uh, talk to me about that. Yeah, glad you asked. Um, as far as eligibility, assuming these are medical care benefits and assuming employees aren't paying anything for the benefits, uh, such as co-payments or anything else, then the benefits are going to be considered impermissible coverage. What does that mean? That means if the employee's enrolled in, in these point solutions, uh, the employee's going to be HSA ineligible. So that's a big deal for those uh, employers that are offering uh, high deductible plans, HDHPs, we call them, um, because usually when you're offering an HDHP, you're trying to qualify your employees for HSA eligibility, and then the employer can contribute some to the HSA, and employees can contribute to their HSAs. Um, so these point solution programs could potentially cause those employees to lose HSA eligibility. Um, that means the employer uh, really needs to build the point solution program benefits into the plan and charge employees something for those benefits. That's really the, the best way around that. Or you just limit point solution program participation to those that are not enrolled in a, in a high deductible health plan. You just say, but sorry, we don't want to conflict with your HSA, so we're just not going to allow you into this program. Um, but really, if you're doing that integration approach, the benefits would need, need to be treated as any other benefit under the plan. Employees have to pay something for them until they meet that statutory minimum deductible for the high deductible health plan. 
Obviously, again, the HSA issue is only an issue for those enrolled in the HSA qualifying high deductible health plans, but that's something to note and to watch. There are some exceptions in the rules for programs that meet certain requirements on this issue. They could potentially be considered insignificant or preventive benefits, and that could, meet, that could maintain HSA eligibility. And then at least through the end of 2022, employers can rely on the telehealth exception, which is that if all benefits are received through telehealth, then HSA eligibility is preserved. So for this year, that's through the end of 2022, since many of these point solutions are administered you know, through the app, you can access it as telehealth, en enrolled employees could retain their HSL HSA eligibility. But we'll see if that exception's only through 2022. We've heard talk of it being expanded by Congress, uh, extended further into 2023 and beyond. We'll just have to see if that's the case. Well, and, and you mentioned preventive. Um, we certainly want to note that that doesn't mean that that's prescribed. So you have to be a certain, there's only certain things that would fall under preventive, not just something that we would consider yeah. preventive. So it's a, that's a, that's a term of art, so to speak. So it's yeah. limited, limited. Um, yeah. Let's turn to taxation. What are the situations, uh, you know, what, how does this impact tax, taxation? Yeah. And this is kind of the, the last thing because you're getting to you know, whether employees have to pay taxes on these. And generally speaking, only medical benefits qualify for the tax exclusion for employees. Tax exclusion means the employee uh, pays no taxes on the benefits. It's not included in their gross or taxable income. But any benefit provided to the employee that, that is not medical care or doesn't otherwise qualify for an exclusion, that needs to be included in the employee's gross income. You usually do that via the employee's form W-2. Uh, most of the time, um, and we've just talked about how these benefits are mostly medical benefits, they are going to be excludable. But one that comes up often is fertility benefits, in particular, egg freezing. That's not generally going to qualify as a medical expense. It's an elective procedure, and so to be taxable, each benefit really has to be reviewed, particularly when you're talking about fertility benefits, because it's, it can be a complicated analysis. But the challenge that really comes up is that if you if you have a benefit and it's taxable, how do you how do you coordinate that with the vendor? And so, um, particularly for the employer, they may not even know which employees are receiving that point solution benefit, right? And the employer is generally the one responsible for reporting gross income for the employees and getting it on a W two. Even if they use a payroll provider, there still is some coordination and some responsibility there on the employer. So one solution to that challenge is for the vendor to communicate the benefit back to the employer, and then the employer reports it on the W-2 through their payroll provider. If you can open up that line of communication, you need to be careful with HIPAA because it could be, um, a, it could be potentially a group health plan. And even if it's not HIPAA, you still have sensitive information going back and forth. Um, so that's one way to handle it. Another is to have the vendor issue a 1099 to the employee directly. Uh, but lots of vendors don't want to get into that aspect of it and aren't willing to do that. So there needs to be some discussion going on, particularly with respect to those fertility benefits. Um, but it really, the mechanics of the taxation and that administrative process depend on the point solution vendor's relationship with the client and how the payroll providers are going to play into this as well. But it's something that needs to be addressed and, and, and considered. 
Yeah, that's HIPAA. That's interesting because if it's not a medical care, it may not fall under HIPAA, right? But there could right. still be other information that's certainly um, governed by states. States often have broader laws out there than HIPAA, so definitely something to be sensitive to. Um, right. All right, Chase, any final thoughts? Yeah, I guess my final thought would just be to um, work closely with the vendor. If, um, if you're working with NFP, come to us and, and we can help walk through these issues. It's a new, newly um, developing area of law, right? These are different ways of, of implementing benefit programs and the rules have not necessarily caught up to the technology and the application and the way that these, method, uh, these benefits are being delivered. And so it's a developing area of law. These are high level issues to consider, but really whether the issues apply and how to handle them comes back to the very specific way that the benefits are being provided through the vendor. And so it's just something we have to work through on a, on a case by case basis. And so, and then we'll continue to monitor and see if there's any developments for in, in guidance, whether the DOL or the IRS comes out with additional guidance to address these types of programs. So. That part, we'll just continue to wait and see. All right. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today. And as we like to say, that's a wrap. That's a wrap.